This episode is brought to you by Redeemer University. Your university years are some of the most important in your life, and where you choose to study matters. Redeemer University, located just outside of Hamilton, Ontario, offers 40 different degree programs, all taught from a Christian perspective. A one-of-a-kind experience that weaves faith and education together, Redeemer prepares you for your future career and helps deepen your faith, all while building Christian friendships that last a lifetime. Learn more and apply when you visit Redeemer.ca. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Real Talk Podcast. Uh, I'm your host today, Lucas Holfleur. And on today's show, I am joined by two gentlemen from ARPA Canada. That is the Association for Reform Political Action. Uh, many of you will, you will know and love them uh, dearly. and You're familiar with their work. And for anybody who isn't, um, they are an uh, advocacy group in Ottawa advocating for biblical policies and positions. They do a lot of great work and they've been on the show before. Uh, we've had back when Mark Penning was over there, uh, he came on the show to talk about the kind of the story of ARPA and way, way, way back in the early days, we also had uh, Andre Schuten on as well to uh, to talk about, I believe it was COVID at that point. So uh, we've we've been, and of course, I should not forget Ryan as well. Ryan Mance has been on the show to, uh, to talk about his story and, and the work he's doing at ARPA as the Ontario manager. So we've had uh, a number of ARPA guests over the years, and uh, it's a pleasure today to be joined by John Sycamore the Director of Law and Policy for ARPA Canada, and then also by Levi Minderhout, uh, who is the BC Manager for, for ARPA. So today's topic we have is, we are talking about their new uh, fall tour coming up, uh, which is entitled Let Kids Be. Talking a lot about um, conversion therapy, gender confusion, uh, just general pride month, these, these type of things. Um, it's a very, um, it's a very broad subject in a lot of ways, and uh, these two gentlemen, I think, will do a great job of breaking down the issue for us in terms of just letting kids be, let kids be kids, and uh, the attack we see on our kids today uh, in the culture at large. So, uh, for starters, gentlemen, I'll, I will throw it over to uh, to Levi, and then we'll go to John just to introduce yourselves, uh, a bit of what you do at ARPA, and then kind of, uh, and we'll kind of go from there. Sounds good. Thank you. Yeah, so I'm Levi Minderhout. I've been involved for ARPA for four full years now, so it's coming up on on five. Uh, I grew up in the, in the in the Fraser Valley, so Abbotsford, Mission, Aldergrove, that region. Uh, spent most of my life down there. Uh, attended United Reformed Church uh, there. From still attend the one that I grew up in. Uh, I went to Dort University in Northwest Iowa for a, my undergrad in political science, economics, business. Um, and while I was there, I had the opportunity to an intern for a member of parliament in Ottawa, Mark Warwa. He was a MP from BC who um, was a passionate uh, defender of palliative care and of life. And uh, unfortunately, he also needed palliative care before he passed away a few years ago. Um, so I did that. And then right after the undergrad, I got a master's of public policy from Simon Fraser University. And then just as I, as I was exiting that degree, ARPA put out the call looking for the very first BC manager. Uh, I applied and uh, they let me in and the rest is history. And I've been the BC manager for ARPA Canada ever since. Very good. Over to you, John. You mentioned the the, the title of uh, director of law and policy. That's you know kind of 
self-explanatory. I get to work with Levi and others on policy matters. I also get to do uh, some legal advocacy for ARPA, sometimes as an intervener and uh, occasionally uh, as, as a party, you know, taking one, one level or other of government to court. Um, so yeah, I, I, I also have a political science background and, and law uh, and did a, a master's in law and religion. Um, which, uh, yeah, it's kind of an interesting um, intersection of, of fields there. Uh, and, yeah, very privileged to work uh, work with the team here at ARPA. Mm, very good, very good. Well, uh, Levi, just an interesting side note. I just had a podcast with uh, with Dort University. Uh, we chatted about their their policies and, and their, their programs and whatnot, too. So uh, if any listeners are listening to this podcast, which should be released following that one, uh, feel free to go back and, and check that one out. Yeah, it was, uh, it was a good podcast. So... A little bit interpodcast promotion aside, we'll get into uh, <laughs> the issues at hand here. So, yeah, I think we should set the scene, uh, set the scene for ourselves, for our listeners. Like, we're at a, a strange point by many uh, aspects and in, in our culture. Um, many things that would have been unthinkable 20 years ago are now commonplace and promoted broadly and widely throughout the culture, throughout the Western world. Um yeah, just these these transitions, uh, transition surgeries for young young children, which is uh, part of the primary focus of today's episode, um, are commonplace and are, are very problematic and are causing uh, a lot of hurt and a lot of pain for many 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 kids uh, around around the world and especially here in the Western world too. So uh, I think I'll throw it over to you, Levi. Uh, you've you've authored a number of policy reports on this matter. If you want to kind of set the scene for how did we get here? How did this become so commonplace? And what was kind of the value shift we've seen? Uh, I guess maybe you, you could talk about the, the, the theories and the ideas of it behind it, but also just like politically, how have we seen this shift happen over the last, let's say, 15 years or so? Yeah, no, that's a, a great question. And uh, this whole episode, we could turn into basically just a history of how we got here. Um, I know I haven't had the opportunity to read the book, but I know uh, I frequent podcast guest, uh, um, Reverend Wittavine, I think, just wrote a book about how did we get here? I'm not sure how much she talks about gender and gender identity in the book. Um, but uh, one really other good book on that whole topic um, is one by Carl Truman, um, Brave New or Strange New World. Um, and so that's a, that's, that's a really good job of kind of tracking the, the history of the development of ideas about gender and gender identity and um, what he calls expressive individualism. Um, but basically the heart um, of how this issue really came into the modern public square. Um, you can go back to, at different, different points, points of history. Um, but maybe I'll just start um, actually with a common place where we also start in reform community, and that is with the Reformation. Now, the, the Reformation and um, the Enlightenment and the Renaissance that all started coming out around the same time, they had a very different attitude to uh, authority. Um, in, in the Reformed tradition and out of the Reformation, there was a lot of beneficial aspects to that, pushing back against the, the bad authority and the misuse of authority from the Catholic Church. And so they rightly pushed back and tried to change the authority structures there. But out of that Reformation and then subsequently into the Enlightenment and to humanism, that um, mistrust of authority started coming out and playing out in more and more different areas and different avenues of life. So various uh, philosophers um, 
and various theorists, they started applying the idea that authority does not come from the church and it doesn't come from God first and foremost. And more and more over the course of hundreds of years, that locus of authority really changed from God and from the church and became more and more centered in the individual. And so this is what Carl Truman called expressive individualism, that I get to express myself however I see fit, however I think is best, and however um, I feel. And in some ways, uh, we've pointed out, uh, as ARPA, and I know some other ministers have pointed this out, that in some ways, this is kind of a return to the ancient heresy of Gnosticism, the idea that we have a physical body and a uh, immaterial soul. The two are at war with each other, and some are good and some are bad. And eventually, we got to the point um, through this expressive individualism that they began to more and more see and identify the true self with not the body, but what is inside the body, basically the soul or the spirit or the mind or however however they want to, to conceive of it and to think of it. But as you start emphasizing that rational, that internal, that mind, that soul um, over other things, then you get to a place where the, the body matters less and less. And so when we get to a place today um, is specifically in terms of gender and sexuality, where it doesn't really matter what your body is, um, because your body is an authoritative, God's design for the body and, and for gender is an authoritative. What is authoritative in the mind of our culture is um, our, our inner selves, our true selves, what we think of as ourselves. And so uh, a natural expression of this in if you're going to, if that's your basis, if that's your underlying logic, is something like medical transitioning where you think of yourself as a boy trapped in a girl's body or a boy or a girl trapped in a boy's body, a phrase that a couple decades ago even would have been nonsensical for the average person. But because this is now the worldview of our society that it's not even given a second glance. And actually the main response of our society is not to get them to rethink that idea and the absurdity of it, but to, in fact, say, we are going to take your self-identity, you, how you conceive of yourself in your mind, and we're going to take that at face value, and we are going to landscape, we are going to change, we are going to modify the human body to align with your identity. If, uh, ultimately, it's rejection and rebellion against God and his purposes for human beings and for human bodies. Um most people, of course, don't see it that way in our modern world. We don't, again, give much credence to the authority of God, the authority of scriptures, and the authority of the church. But that's how many people think of it today, very sadly. Mm -hmm. Do you think, um, and I'll get to you, John, in a second there, but do you think, just as a quick follow to that, Levi, that um, why we haven't seen that much pushback until maybe recently, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, in the broader culture on this issue is because of this uh the, the, the locus of power or the locus of authority is in oneself. So we have this live and let live type culture. So there, there really is no ground to push back when something crazy like this comes along. Yeah, I think that's, uh, you hit the nail on the head right there, that the, the locus of authority is that on human autonomy, literally human individual self-law. And so it's not, of course, restricted to this issue. The whole dialogue around abortion is of framed of choice and of my body, my choice. Euthanasia is framed of as a choice. And even on issues 
that um, we are sympathetic to, like school choice is often something that's put out there, um, or vaccine choice, or conscious, all of these things, some of them may be good because we do have the freedom as people of God and as Christians to choose between alternatives. We're not slaves to any particular thing. Freedom is a good thing. But if you overemphasize that and solely focus on human autonomy and choice, then it becomes basically a God that everything else has to be subservient to. And I think you see that um, in all sorts of different issues in society today. That's the, one of the fundamental things that we as Christians need to push back against. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we, we certainly need to be aware of that. Uh, John, on, on your end of things in the, in the legal realm, um, has this, I'm sure, and I'm sure it has, this, this way of thinking made its way into the legal realm. Has there been any key decisions or any key, um, yeah, yeah, legal decisions made in the last like 10, 15 years that have really shifted the tide on this issue? Or has a lot of it actually just been uh, people just letting uh, people get away with this, these kind of policies, especially around children? And there is really no good legal structure in place. Yeah, I think in on the gender issue specifically, um, we've seen gender identity, gender expression added to human rights laws in the last decade. But uh, I think there is kind of a continuation of of this um, this new anthropology shaping the law. Right, already in the '90s, we had courts reading protections based on sex or sexual equality in the law as basically meaning gender identification, the way you define your own sexual identity. Um, so that's, it's already been interpreted that way for, for decades, and this just has just kind of been more and more solidified in law. Um, but I'd like to uh, pick up on something, something Levi said that was, that was interesting about um, you know, mentioning euthanasia and, and abortion and, and autonomy. And certainly autonomy is probably the, the leading um, value or principle, if you will, in the development of our, of our law today, this, this right of self-definition and what goes with it, this kind of expectation of social recognition for that. Um, but that these things, uh, you know, we're, we're talking about gender and, and sexuality today, and uh, that's that's the um, subject of our, our reports and, and fall tour. Um, but these things are, are connected. Uh, there was a recent um, study released by, I believe it was Mark Regnerus, uh, and he found that one of the best predictors of whether someone supports so-called gender-affirming care is not their age or their political leanings or a number of other factors, but whether or not they support abortion or the right to choose. And that's very interesting, right? Um, And he explains it as, again, being connected to this anthropology, this view of what does it mean to be human um, and do really our bodies have any meaning um, and that's something where Lucas, you you started by asking about, you know, how did we how do we get here? Um, Truman opens his book by asking, how did we get to a place where it makes sense to say that um, you know a man could be you know trapped in a or someone could say I'm a man trapped in a woman's body, for example? How does that statement even make sense? Um, and Nancy Piercy's book, uh, Love Thy Body, where she does cover a number of these issues, says that it's um, one other factor she points to is is Darwinism um, and and secularism pushing God out of the picture and basically saying we have this material universe, but what does it mean? And Darwinism basically says it doesn't mean anything, and therefore human bodies don't mean anything. And then 
you know, what do we do with that uh, religiously, philosophically? How do we respond to that if, if that's our starting point? If we actually believe that um, we just have this material world that doesn't have any intrinsic meaning, it's probably here by accident. Uh, and and the response as humans uh, was basically, uh, it's an existential crisis, but it was existentialism. It's, you know, it has whatever meaning we we give it. Um, you know, man is what man makes of himself. And so we have these bodies that we we get to define we get to determine how we use we say you know we get to we get to define them we have an absolute claim over them and we even get to name them um piercy uses this analogy of you know god is over the unformed as yet unorganized matter that he's created and he's organizing it it's kind of like people standing over this physical world and saying well i'll make meaning of it uh, I'll say what it means and I'll say who I am and what I get to do. And it's just kind of going back to the fall in Genesis three. It's this kind of human assertion of this godlike place. And that's really what autonomy means, right? That we're a law unto ourselves. It's literally what the term means. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. So is that where something, and maybe I just, if you're describing this right now, but where social constructionism comes in is kind of the, this battle of two, two anthropologies, as you mentioned, right? We have we can man can make his own world and, and make of it what he wants versus you know the imagio day god has created us we have purpose uh those those would be i guess the two kind of major competing worldviews then yeah i think where where social construct comes into it um i i might not apply that to what i was just saying in terms of this assertion that the individual can um really define their own identity um but that kind of as a as a group um society gives us these kinds of uh constructs and i think that the social Mm -hmm. constructionists actually are using the the concept of of social constructions to um in order to then deconstruct them so take something like uh marriage or family or what they call heteronormativity or you know cisgenderism um they'll say this this expectation that we conduct ourselves sexually this way, right? That that a man should unite exclusively with one woman. That's that is just a social construct. That's not intrinsically right or wrong. It's just um, something that society has formed as a social expectation for you know complex reasons. But that's all it is. It's not intrinsically meaningful or intrinsically right. Uh, and so that's that's where I, I do see that as connected, right? Because again, it's just there's no intrinsic meaning. It's that's a meaning that maybe I haven't chosen for myself, but that has been socially constructed for me. And some of these social constructs can then be um, oppressive and, and limiting of my freedom when there's no, you know, intrinsic or, or transcendent reason for for me to be limited by such a social construct. Mm-hmm. Okay, no, that's just that's helpful. I understand that. Go ahead, Levi. I was going to say just one thing on that. Um, you kind of pitted like social constructivism versus like. Uh, basically the Bible or biblical view. Um, and I think for this issue of gender and sexuality, that very much is a, is a can be a beneficial way of, of putting it because um, as John said, uh, the biblical view is that there are transcendence, there are uh, norms around gender and sexuality that we ought to promote as Christians and as human beings. They don't just get invented by society um, like that. But uh, just so that we don't throw out the baby with the bathwater, um, in every area of life, it's not that you. whenever you hear the term social constructionism, that is necessarily bad. There are certain things in our lives that by human activities, we do give meaning to. Um, and the one ac- example that we give in uh, in the policy report is, for instance, the value of our modern currency. 
like uh, our currency in Canada is the Canadian dollar. Um, it's not backed up by gold or any precious metals. It basically has value because, well, fundamentally, the government says it's val uh, valuable. And even behind that, because we agree that it has value. If Canada were to be taken over by another foreign nation, um, um, if there was rampant, rampant inflation, if the government decided to have a new currency, then the Canadian dollar would be worthless because we collectively don't think it has value anymore. And so that's in the, uh, an example of where the idea or the philosophy of social constructivism actually has some value, but it just can't be applied all around the entire world. Um, like many things in the world, um, something can have some good to it intrinsically, um, but to make it the centerpiece of all of human life and the, and the explanation for all things, it makes it an idol. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So primarily, it's, it's honestly probably used as a tool more for deconstruction, kind of like you mentioned, John. It's, it's more for, yeah, pulling pulling it apart. And then our society has done that, as you mentioned, to, you know, you have marriage, family, a, a lot of these foundational societal building blocks, right? Which leaves us really with only the self. And so now we're back to the self again. We determine our own identities and our own norms, whatnot. So then we come to this, this battle of opposing anthropologies, which is uh, self-expressive individualism on the one hand versus Imagio Dei uh, anthropology on the other hand. Um, Levi, do you want to break down these two competing uh, views for, for us? Yeah, sure. Um, and just to start off, in case our listeners aren't familiar with the idea, anthropology basically means a view of man, a view of humanity. What do you think human beings are? Um, as we've talked about a little bit about the self-expressive individual, the idea that fundamentally the view of man is that we are rational, autonomous human beings. We can make whatever choice we want. Um, we are king. We are master uh, of our own destiny, of our own fate. And what we decide um, is good is what is good. And that's the idea of self-expressive um, individualism. But the model of anthropology that comes from Christianity really is centered on the idea of the image of God, the imago Dei. Um, and so we learn from scripture as we read through, even from the beginning verses of Genesis, that there is a purpose to humanity that we don't just get to invent for ourselves. God creates human beings in his image, male and female, he created them. And that is the fundamental verse about how men and women were created. And we learn out through the rest of the narrative of scripture, what that means, what that means for every single person made in the image of God. Um, and in some cases, what that specially means for men and specially means for women. But fundamentally, behind that anthropology that we are made in the image of God, that gives us an essence of what human beings are and what we have created to do. We have more value than um, other other creatures, other animals, because we are specially made in, God, in God's image in that way. Um, we have a purpose to us to, to glorify God and to enjoy him forever, to fulfill the cultural mandate, to be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. That's something that's specially made in what it means to be made in the image of God. But especially when it comes to the question of being male and female, um, we're made in the image of God, sexually dimorphous, male and female, um, in, for one reason is to just reflect the, the need for relationship. So God is, is the Trinity. He's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And there's a relationship in that Trinity. And so if God just created us one human being um, and left it at that, well, there'd be no human relationship there, no need for it. 
But of course, uh, God sees that it's not good for man to be alone. He created a helper suitable for him. And they were different and made to come together um, in difference, but in unity as well. And so that's just one of the uh, kind of theological aspects uh, behind, behind what it means to be made in the image of God. And in applying that forward, that means that we're made for relationships, that we're made different means that we don't get to just invent ourselves however we want. We are made with a purpose and with a specific nature. We're not meant to make decisions by ourselves. We're meant to make decisions with other people in mind and in consultation with other people. Fundamentally, that idea that we're made in the image of God doesn't start with us. It starts with God, and then everything flows out from that. Instead of the other way around, where we think of today, from expressive individual, humanism, secularism, whatever you want to call it, they're they start with the human being and everything goes out uh, from there. But we start with God and his image and make our anthropology, make our entire world flow from that. Great. Okay. That's good. So I think we have a handle on the backdrop um, in, in terms of at least where setting the scene, the ideas at play, how we kind of got here from an ideas perspective. Now I think we got to get a kind of a handle on some of these terms because yeah, they can be they can be hard to understand, uh, especially if you're not like having your your mind in the in the gender debate all the time, and if you're just a, a regular Joe working your job and you hear these terms like gender identity, gender expression, uh, gender dysphoria. Like, okay, how 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 are these different terms? How are they distinct? What do they all mean? Uh, John, are you able to break down some of those terms for us and kind of explain uh, what's going on when people are using these? Yeah, a little bit. I think. Um... And Levi does a good job of, of explaining this, uh, but um, the you know gender and sex at, at one point in history basically mean the same thing. Gender sometimes is used as a linguistic term. So you might talk about you know gendered pronouns and so on. Uh, that obviously having again still corresponding to the fact that um, gender sex is is binary. But gender, I think, first starts to take on um, yeah a meaning beyond that to kind of say well there's sex, sex is natural, sex is biological, and then gender starts to be used in a way that denotes the uh, the kind of social meaning and social expression of sexual difference. And I don't think that development is necessarily bad. You don't have a term that's like, okay, well, yeah, sex means, you know, maybe it was more specific to the biological difference and the reality that God created us male and female. Uh, gender can mean, you know, maybe gender roles, gender, um, you know, gendered clothing, things that we see. Yeah, we have different cultures might express sexual difference in different ways that are not um, not necessarily right or wrong. It's just like these are social cues. Um, in one context, a, a woman might dress some way. And in that culture, you would know even someone far away, the way they're dressed, that's that's a woman over there. That's a, a gender cue, if you will, that, that corresponds to. It's related to sex, but you can use the terms to mean slightly different things, but they're still related. Um, but eventually, gender kind of become separated from sex in a more fundamental way such that we get gender identity. Uh, and this is this kind of ill-defined, you know, sense of being um, male or female. Um, this, so it kind of, apart from the body, um, gender is kind of circularly defined today, but it's regardless of what your biology is, your, your inner sense of being masculine or feminine, male or female, um, and your body is seen as not determining that so it's kind of this this bifurcated anthropology that you can be someone else in in your mind or spirit essentially um than someone else than you are in your body right and that that 
um, that disembodied self in the mind is is more important than your body. So you hear you hear phrases uh, like in a, a BBC documentary on transgenderism, for example, someone said, you know, basically I I can be a, a who I choose to be regardless of the meat the meat skeleton that I was born in, or why should why should you know a piece of flesh between my legs define who I am? Why should I let that define me? Like I'm not going to be limited. Um, there's a sense in which we 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 still sense that our maleness or femaleness is essential to our identity. It's hard to escape that, although some people, of course, claim to be non-binary. But then there's also the sense of the body being received and not chosen is therefore a limit on my freedom and my self-definition. So there's that also kind of rejection of the body to say what's in my mind uh, will trump what's in my body, and if I want to, I can I can change my body to to better fit how I feel or how I want to express myself. Um, and that's kind of the manifestation of gender identity today as more important than, um, than se- bodily sex. Mm-hmm. Okay. And then when someone is experiencing gender dysphoria, can you go into that a little bit for us? Yeah. Um, gender dysphoria, I, I understand it to be, uh, and, and Levi, might want, Levi might want to jump in here too, but uh, basically dysphoria is a term that just means discomfort distress and as that relates to gender um it's known as kind of the yeah the discomfort associated with not not feeling either comfortable in your body specifically your sexed body um or or even believing that you're in the wrong body right wishing that you had a a body more closely aligned with the the other sex um so yeah just that discomfort with mm-hmm. with your sex body is how i understand that term yeah, and and this is where um, there can be different nuances in language. So, so from a Christian perspective, we would say that anyone who thinks that they are a different gender than how they were born, that they experience some sort of confusion, um, maybe some discomfort, maybe something called dysphoria, something like that. So we might think from our perspective, anyone who claims to be a different gender than how they are born has dysphoria. But actually, uh, gender dysphoria is still technically considered to be a mental illness. So in the APA um, DSM-5, like you talk about gender identity as a, a, sorry, gender dysphoria as a specific mental illness. And same with uh, the other main, main document that is a, it keeps a tab and keeps a tabulation of what our mental illnesses, the D, uh, the ICD, the International Classic classification of diseases. They also talk about gender dysphoria or gender incongruence as being something that is still a, a medically diagnosable problem. And so I think we'll get into this in a sec, but that's one of the reasons why we see this go coming into the medical realm is because uh, in our society today, and historically, we've viewed something like gender dysphoria, a discomfort between your body and what you think of yourself in your head, that discomfort or that confusion, they still think that of think that thing as a, a medical problem, a, a mental health problem, not just something that is a difference in anthropologies or a difference in belief or a difference in worldview. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it's assumed, yeah, no, that's a good way of putting it. It's assumed that it's fine. It's just like a different medical issue to deal with. And we will, you know, apply the various surgeries and treatments as needed. Okay. So yeah, it's primarily, yeah, it's a disorder of the mind, not the body. I believe that was a quote in one of the, uh, in the policy reports you had there. So do you want to get into a bit uh, the trend we've seen in, uh, yeah, probably again, like the last five, 10 years uh, to wrap uh, about rapid onset gender dysphoria? 
and how it kind of seems to come in in uh, waves maybe or like bunches and especially in groups of, of young girls and uh yeah see many a podcast talk about that you want to talk about that uh that phenomenon a bit yeah so um not that we have statistics from the whole course of human history but it seemed to right up about until 10 15 20 years ago there was a very very small number of children specifically boys um who had something akin to gender dysphoria so that they they um and it would be almost always be there before puberty so before they had gone through all the changes the complex changes that come through puberty they were discomfortable or uncertain about their their gender um and, and then their place in god's world before puberty but after puberty, as they went through that process of maturing, then in the vast majority of situations, that would go away naturally, um, and they would uh, be comfortable to be as uh, full-grown adult men. Um, and so that's what gender dysphoria was historically. But in the last, like I said, uh, 10, 15 years, we've seen a massive reversal where it's not uh, pre-puberty young boys uh, exhibiting gender dysphoria or some sort of confusion here. It's now trended so that almost, uh, or not, almost not all, that's a little bit hyperbole, but the vast majority of gender dysphoria happening to girls and to teenage girls after they have had the changes uh, of puberty there. And so, as you said, there, there's this one landmark study um, that has received a lot of criticism, um, mostly because it doesn't align with many people's ideas understanding or preferred understanding of gender and sexuality. There's one study by uh, a journalist called, uh, formal journalist, Lisa Littman, where she basically looked and said, um, you are, 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 a teenage girl was more likely to identify as transgender if she had transgender friends. Basically the implication being is that it is um, something that you might not just get from your day-to-day -day life, but if you have friends or if you have exposure to people who identify as trans, then you are more likely to identify that way. And even more shockingly, sometimes whole like groups or friend groups or clusters of girls, um, five, seven, 10 girls, all of a sudden would come out and identify as transgender together. And statistically, that's like like impossible. There's no way in the terms of statistics when it's only a tiny, tiny percentage of a population that that can come out. And so she came up with this new term called rapid onset gender dysphoria to document the new phenomenon, not happening in young boys, but now in teenage girls of just a whole slew of young girls deciding that we don't want to be girls anymore. We don't feel like girls anymore. Uh, and we identify as as boys and we want to transition. So that's what's meant by uh, that new uh, the new term rapid onset gender dysphoria. And you can see that anywhere you look in statistics, like um, the best place, the best uh, charts, a source of statistics on gender dysphoria um, comes from the UK. Um, and that's simply because they're a relatively small, but uh, large, uh, lar small in terms of geography, but large in terms of population. So they only had one gender clinic. So anyone who had, gender dysphoria or suffering confusion there, they were all sent to the same place. And so for for a long time, for, for years, it was just like covering like a couple cases every year. And then in around 2000, 2008, uh, it started to go up a little bit more and then it basically just spikes all the way up. Um, and uh, as, as far as you can see, so something, uh, whenever you see something that grows by 
like 500 or 1000%. Um, those aren't very normal rates of change, especially when it comes to demography and demographics. So when you see that, that's usually a, a red flag saying there's something that really, really changed here. And it's something that's really different. Mm -hmm, for sure. Definitely. A, yeah. A rapid increase in, uh, in gender. Yeah. Gender dysphoria for sure. Uh, John, can you get into gender affirming care a little bit for us? Um, some of the, I mean, well, many of the pitfalls of this gender affirming care approach that is, uh, yeah, been, been played out across all these many, especially as you mentioned, Levi, young girls who are coming into these clinics, um, and some of the, some of the problems that uh, exist with this approach, and then even uh, any current legal issues that uh, are kind of arising after after people start to transition back uh, to their original sex. Sure. So yeah, let's just first maybe cover uh, what's included in gender affirming care. Sure. Um, that uh, that terribly a terrible phrase, but um, three things. One is puberty blocking drugs. Um, second is cross sex hormones, and third would be surgeries. Um, National Post released an article recently on on how common it seems that mastectomies are becoming uh, among among minors. Um, and I believe that the the WPATH guidelines on this are that mastectomies can be done earlier than um, hysterectomies and other procedures um, to to remove or, or you know reconstruct genitalia. Um, that they they try to push those to when someone's older, but uh, those those things. So puberty blockers. Uh, already as you know these have been kind of sold as well putting a pause on on puberty uh the reality is that almost all children who start on puberty blockers will go on to receive cross-sex hormones uh, and and puberty blockers um they are you know what what they sound like sometimes they will start um early on in puberty sometimes they'll start you know a couple years into puberty but often in response to the the distress that a a child is feeling with you know if they if they identify if they've come to believe that they are you know let's say a girl truly believes that she's a boy or, or should be a boy then as her body develops um to become into a sexually mature female that that becomes distressing because it's out of line with her self-concept uh, and the standard approach now is to um, treat treat the body as as the problem uh, and so the first step in that is normally puberty blockers, uh, and then, like I said, cross sex hormones. And the there's plenty of evidence to suggest, uh, and and Levi researched this uh, closely, um, just to suggest that the the health impacts of this can be um, quite devastating. So um, just I, I won't comment more on on those um, some of the many health implications of that, but even just in terms of um, sexual development. The reality is that um, you know a, a boy who starts puberty blockers early on in in puberty or before puberty and and proceeds to cross sex hormones um, just won't won't develop the capacity um, not only to to have children but even to to have a sexual relationship. And if that then progresses, um, you know, some maybe a few years later to surgeries, then obviously having children uh, is is out of the question um so just just in that in that sense in terms of your your sexual capacity your capacity for forming a a, a relationship or or being married or having children um it's a it's a path to destroying that i think that's very serious and i would just say too that um boys gender dysphoria in boys is increasing 
as well. Levi's right that the the social contagion aspect is far more pronounced among young girls, but the numbers overall are increasing. Um, and I think that's you know we're basically seeing uh, what some people are calling a, a medical crisis or or the biggest you know medical scandal of of our time. Well, yeah, yeah feel free to weigh in, Levi. Oh yeah, sorry. Uh, and I was just going to comment and probably like analogy. I was just it just came to me today as I was doing some other work. But um, if you know history, um, so in, the, in in China, decades, centuries ago, they used to practice something called foot binding. Um, the idea that it was attractive for girls to have really small feet. Um, and so what they would do uh, as the girls grew up is that they would just bind their feet with a lot of cloth really, really tight. Essentially do it so tight that the girls' feet were not allowed to grow. So imagine a, a fully grown human being, normally proportioned, but they have a, the feet size of a, I don't know, to pick a seven-year-old. And they, they, they did this to try to fundamentally reshape the, the human body of these of these girls but then they they can walk properly they have super deformed feet because they were so compressed and eventually the christian influence reached china and helped to to end this practice and say no we're not going to put children and young people through something that is so um debilitating um and that just came to mind to me that's basically what puberty blockers do today they try to stop normal human development and not just pause it not just uh say oh we don't want you to grow um a little bit more hair on your head it's not it's not just something like that like they are fundamentally stopping a human person from developing the way that god intended them to and that's like if you think about it, if you really take a second or a minute to think about what that is it's just crazy to think you wouldn't you wouldn't we wouldn't condone today that foot binding as a Chinese practice because we like small feet. People rightfully would speak up and say, no, that is terrible for the influence and the appearance and the well-being of a child. And so we do not want that to be condoned in any, any circumstance. And yet today we're at such a point where a comparable procedure, or something that's comparable, puberty blockers, just to start, um, even that is say, no, um, that's just puts a pause on something. It's all fine. It's all good. We don't really care about this. Um, actually, this is a beneficial way for people to explore their identity. Like they aren't understanding the comparisons about where we've been as a society in other parts of the world hundreds of years ago. And they don't see that they're doing something comparable today. Mm -hmm. How does consent work or something like that? What's the, is there a consistent age limit across the country? Is it different province to province? And like how involved do, do parents get to be? Let's put it that way as far as the government looks at it. Yeah, good question. There's there's kind of standard legal doctrine, which is uh, what's called mature minors. Um, and in healthcare, that basically means where, um, so ordinarily a, a parent's consent is needed to give a child medical treatment, um, parent's consent on behalf of the child. But where, where in the doctor's view, um, the child is mature enough to understand the nature of the treatment, its risks and consequences, the child can consent on their own behalf, right? Uh, now, parents might challenge that in court. That actually happened in a case in, in British Columbia where a father challenged a, a gender clinic's, you know, green lighting. A, a, at the time, I believe she was 13 when she started, uh, his daughter started um, testosterone, taking synthetic testosterone. Um, and he he lost that in in court. Um, and 
so that's it's really uh there's there's obviously a normative judgment in, involved in that i mean um can a 13 14 year old understand the the implications the consequences of going through treatments and procedures that will render them um you know, in the case of mastectomies, unable to breastfeed. In the case of cross-sex hormones, you know, uh, a a woman on cross-sex hormones for a certain period of time may um, essentially destroy her her ovaries, her reproductive capacity, even before having surgery. Or those hormones may make surgery necessary because of the damage done to those reproductive organs. Can someone that age, who's never had a sexual relationship, is is too young to have a uh, to be married or to have a mature sexual relationship or to have children um, really understand the lifelong implications of that. And our culture is saying, yes, um, you know, at, that, at a, that uh, a lot of these children are showing maturity um, and, and they, they can make these decisions. And I think that implicit in that is a kind of devaluing of um, yeah, meaningful uh, marriage and, and family life later in life, that that's not as important as asserting and realizing your gender identity today. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a good point. Sad. It's, it's, it's just sad to see where it's at, honestly. Um, we talked about a little bit in this outline here, the wait and see approach. Um, now, this will be something that I think Harvard, we would be in favor of generally. Um, is there good stats, Levi, to back this up, this approach that a lot of these kids do end up growing out of this dysphoria and this discomfort? Yeah. Um, so the wait and see approach is, is um, so because this rapid, on gender, rapid onset gender dysphoria is such a new phenomenon, like um, there be there's not a lot of information about outcomes um, yet and what would happen over the course of someone's life if nothing was done. Um, I mean, what studies there are so far are not super encouraging or not giving a lot of not giving much support to the identity that they should medically, medically transition. But the wait and see approach has been around for a, a very long time when it comes to what I was mentioning earlier, those pre-puberty young boys who experience gender dysphoria and all the studies, multiple studies that were done on them over the course of um, 10, 20 years, many, many, many decades ago already, they found that. 80% of those boys, after they went through puberty, would grow up to be healthy, happy men without any questions about uh, gender gender issues or confusion about their gender. 80%. The problem today now is that we basically have taken a statistic and said, well, we don't actually really care what would happen if we just left kids alone. Instead, what we want to do is actively encourage them or actively push them down the, the road to transitioning because well, for whatever reason that's the that's what they prefer to see rather than just letting nature take their co course and letting letting fundamentally them figure out who they are um go ask any person any eight-year-old any 12-year-old what do you want to be when you grow up um follow them 10 years later and you're probably not they're probably not going to be in the same line of uh, work as what they thought as a child um and that's just something um like vocation, um, it's and it can be way different and way more uncertain as John was talking about. If you're talking about even more weighty matters, is yeah, do I fundamentally change or have surgery or mutilate the body that I have now? Did did that study talk about what they ended up identifying as like sexually? Because I feel like I've heard that study reference on other podcasts before, and often they say most of the kids turn out to be gay. 
uh, like choose to live a gay lifestyle, you know what I mean? Like, is that, uh, was that part of the study? Uh, and, and, and then as a follow-up to that, wouldn't there be people in the, in the LG part of the LGBT lobby who would be, uh, on the side of like, let's, let's not do this uh, kind of treatment to kids because it's, in their view, it's hurting all these young gay kids. Yeah. The studies that I've mentioned, I'm not sure if they actually go into the sexual orientation part of it, yeah. but there are lots of. Uh, studies out there that basically find a similar conclusion yes that these people or young young kids who don't act the way that other boys do for example a boy doesn't act like other boys that they are more likely to be gay when they reach adulthood um, yeah. or or girls in, in, in the same way and so there is a lot of of that like just as you said on, on that topic okay okay interesting um and i think i think we should just as as Christians, we need to be we careful here. I think there is um, there is indeed evidence that children who are strongly gender non-conforming uh, from a young age are more likely later on to adopt either uh, you know lesbian or gay identity or or a transgender identity, right? Um, but the the narrative is um, in part that yeah we're we're medicalizing. Uh, uh, even you know neutering uh, gay children, right? These are these are gay children. This is basically their their essence, and we are we are medicalizing away the next you know population of of gay children. And and where I think caution is called for there is that uh, this this too to say these these are gay children, right? Is already applying a kind of cultural framework to interpreting their gender nonconformity, right? Um, and again, this is take, taking. I'm just thinking of Nancy Piercy's book, where she talks about um, Christians in different fields. She talks about um, a number of Christian uh, Girl Scout leaders who all, who knew each other, who who end up identifying uh, as as lesbian because you know they their independence, their their outdoorsiness, their ruggedness. They kind of interpret that as um, meaning that they are lesbian. And she's saying often these things of tem temperament that make us uncomfortable feel like we don't belong in the gender that we belong to can be interpreted in complex ways and that's i, I want to be careful not to you know give a, a reductive explanation of of people's experience of sexual attraction which is very complex it's dealt with in much more detail in in our report uh it's often not subject to our control but but i think we also need to avoid the reductionism of saying what's happening is you know medicalizing gay children um i think as christians we need to point again to this um if you will body positivity that our our identity is defined as male and female that's how god created us and then how we live that out in terms of uh expressing gender and also in terms of how we conduct ourselves sexually and how we how we evaluate our own sexual feelings right that that has to be done in light of um yeah, God's creational norms, as as taught to us in both Scripture and kind of through, yeah, through general revelation, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, that, that and that's a good point. I'm I'm not trying to. Yeah, it, it's wise to exercise yeah. caution on on that point. I think I was more thinking on a political level, if there was any sort of alignment there. If you've seen that kind of messaging from from within the LGBT lobby, if there's a bit of a split on that regard, because I would think if if yeah, that there would be some internal conflict there, at least. Yeah, yeah. And, and there definitely is. Like, if you read Strange New World or Karma's, uh, Truman's other larger book, he goes quite into detail about the, the splits within the, the LGBT 
LGBTQI plus community. Uh, like all the splits and like basically they're they're the way they they go together. Like um, there are something called turfs. There are trans exclusory radical feminists that are basically thrown out of the 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 feminist or camp because of their perspectives. There, there's organizations. Um, and the one that comes to mind is Gays Against Groomers, which again precisely thinks like, oh, we need to stop this medicalization of gay children. But at the end of the day, as Christians, um, we're not going to be saying like uh, that transgender is being better than gay or that a bisexual person is better than being transgender. Like there, there's no value equations there that one is worse. And even broader to this, all sexual sin is bad. It doesn't matter if it is something, um, someone looking at pornography of the same sex, that's not going to be better than someone who identifies as gay, for example. Like they are all forms of sexual sin. And regardless of how they manifest themselves, they are all right in the sight of God. And we all should strive to align human action, human thought, human behavior, human attractions towards how God has identified in the word. It's not just about sexual orientation and gender identity. There's a whole host of other sexual sins that um, I think we do need to be careful sometimes as Christians not to say, yeah, these are the real bad ones that we're going to focus on and give less attention to other sorts of sexual sins as well. Unfortunately, when it comes to this issue, the government isn't uh, publicly subsidizing these um, these sins and behaviors in the way that they're publicly subsidizing medical transitions, for example. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes. No, and uh, and that's good to, to keep in mind as we all yeah deal with this issue, engage with this issue, not to, to get at our high horse and to uh, yeah to be aware of the, the log in our own eyes, so to speak, as well. But uh, there are definitely still very many reasons to be engaged uh, on this issue. Of course, one of those being to help protect the vulnerable, especially the young who are being targeted with this ideology, with this approach of, of uh, yeah, of treating with gender-affirming care. Um, of course, recently in the last couple of years, we've seen this conversion therapy law here in Canada. Um, can you guys touch on that a little bit? Like, what does this law restrict? Uh, how does this play out for churches? Um, I think this has been touched on before by ARPA, but it'd be good to review where we stand, actually, and what are we legally allowed to do? Um, and how to be wise about uh, about going forward with that. So maybe I'll throw it to John first on this one, if you want to speak to some of that, and then, then back to Rita. Sure, yeah. To be as brief as I can, uh, Canada now, through its criminal law, prohibits, um, I believe it's practice, it's practice treatment and one other thing, but somewhat, somewhat of a formal, uh, sorry, Levi? Service. Service, practice treatment or service um, designed to um, change someone's sexual orientation to heterosexual or to change their gender identity to cisgender. It doesn't go the other way. <laughs> uh, the ban is specifically that. So trying to push, you know, gender nonconforming or, or, you know, sexual minorities into what, you know, you might uh, call uh, or what, what some people might call heteronormativity or uh, cisnormativity. That's, that's the ban. Um, and now with, the Department of Justice documents that go with that, there's they're not as clear as they as they should be, um, but there's some indication that that doesn't include you know any just any conversation or you know let's say any religious teaching. It, it's some kind of 
formal one-on-one something akin to counseling but maybe not quite they, they definitely could have made it more clear so it seems like the leaving it broad in the text of the law itself uh was maybe intended to send a message even while the justice department said oh don't worry this isn't this isn't absurdly abroad as to so as to be unconstitutional but that's that's the reality we now have it written in our law that you can't try to change someone's um sexual orientation or gender identity in that way but not only that it says you can't try to reduce their um, same-sex sexual attraction or or behavior as well, um, which our culture sees as intimately connected with one's sexual identity, right? One's, one's sexual feelings and one's sexual behavior. Um, and so for Christians, of course, we look at that and say, so basically teaching a Christian sexual ethic, uh, or at least counseling a person one-on-one to conform to a Christian sexual ethic um, would appear to be a potential crime. Um, I think one one kind of a silver lining or one encouraging aspect of this is I, I think that for people who have helped Christians with gender struggles or um, sexual same-sex sexual attraction, that what they often find what people often find more helpful is again this return to a um, Christian anthropology. So not a focus on your feelings, not let's come up with some technique to get rid of those, you know, same-sex sexual feelings and to manufacture some heterosexual attraction. Uh, that doesn't really work well and often often does produce some some distress, um, especially when certain results are promised that can't be delivered on. But in this kind of rooting people in the reality of God's good creation. Um, we've included a story that, again, Nancy Piercy includes in her book, but of a of a Christian man who um, said that by, by focusing on the fact that God made him a man um, and what his body means, right, that he has the innate capacity to unite with a woman, that as he kind of learned the significance of that, his feelings of same-sex attraction um, started to appear to be what was less important. That was no longer what what defined him. And I think that is still at least teaching a Christian anthropology uh, is is not prohibited by this law, and in, and in some ways is the better approach to helping um, Christians and, and non Christians who are struggling with same sex attraction. Yeah, the problem fundamentally though is is that teaching the anthropology is still legal, but. The purpose behind the bill is basically that Christian anthropology, a biblical understanding of sexual and gender, gender identity, it basically calls that a myth. And of course, it's almost impossible for a government to regulate myths or belief in myths. And so that's primarily how the law is used today. There's not a high likelihood of people actually being complained about and convicted on this law and actually punished for it. The real purpose um, and the and the danger to a large extent is that we are going to, that Christians are going to self-censor ourselves um, out of fear of potentially running afoul of the law. And so that's um, in, in legal, legal literature or economic literature, sometimes it's called a chilling effect. Like they're trying to basically chill or dissuade people without actually using any force, um, not to promote a biblical view of gender and sexuality. Mm-hmm. Right, right. Okay. Um, looking more broadly for a minute here, um, and then we'll kind of get into what the campaign you guys are, are putting on this fall is all about. Um, what are some other countries in the world doing, thinking especially here of the UK, 
in regards to kind of the, the yeah the reaction we've seen against this movement now a little more in the broader culture certainly in America and I think a bit in the UK as well what what uh, what has that reaction been like and are, are there any signs of encouragement about what Dubai? Yeah, there definitely are. Um, just to take one step back for a second, though. Um, the organization throughout the world that is, quote unquote, the expert on gender and medical transition is an organization called WPATH. I think John mentioned them earlier. Um, it stands for the World um, Psych Psych Psychological Association for Transgender Health or something like that. And anyways, so they are the organization that doctors and medical practitioners have looked to about how do we treat this? How do we go about talking and medicalizing and doing surgery about this? Um, so they've kind of looked to this one international medical activist organization for all their guidance. But what happens when countries actually take the time uh, with their own medical establishments and their own research to take a look at what the evidence is in the academic literature, they realize that, oh, like John and I outlined, there are a ton of risks, medical risks to all of these medically and surgical uh, transitioning procedures. Um, and kids have really uh, difficult time consenting if they can consent at all. So basically, when countries decide to do their own medical reviews of the literature, they say, hold it, having no age requirements, no official age requirements on all this stuff, like WPATH suggests they say there's there's no actually age minimum age you need to be before you can get this type of transition. Um, so, looking at all of that, countries are saying we're going to actually put in evidence based policy. So countries like um, I believe Finland was actually the first one to review it and basically say, okay, we are going to uh, make sure at the very least that you have to be over eighteen, not a minor, not a child anymore, in order to have those cross-sex hormones or that gender reassignment surgery. Um, Sweden set the ages at like 16 and 18. Um, the UK is also uh, doing 16 for cross-sex hormones and 18 for gender, like for like surgical transitioning. Um, and more and more countries are actually coming to these standards that there has to be a minimum age requirement at the very least to tackle the question of consent. Um, and then also saying that we're only going to provide these type of these treatments, we're not going to provide them as a first step or first reaction to gender dysphoria, but we're going to do a lot of time digging into a person's psychological history. They have histories of abuse or other comorbid conditions. Let's go through every single possible thing that we can think of to try to alleviate and resolve and help this person live with their gender dysphoria before we start medicating and before we start doing um, surgical transitions. So that's happening all over the developed world. Um, yeah, UK is actually really a really good case of that. There's a beautiful or a great book. Beautiful, not the right word. Um, I have it on my shelf. It's uh, "Time to Think" by Hannah Barnes. She goes spends a whole book documenting how all of this has transpired in the United Kingdom. And and yeah, the problem with Canada though is we haven't done the literature review. We haven't looked into the evidence. And so while many, many other countries are coming up with all sorts of safeguards and requirements and better ways to handle this entire topic, Canada has basically said, yeah, we're just going to continue looking to that international medical activist organization and just have no age requirements. And just say whenever doctors feel like they want to, or whenever they're of the opinion it might it might help, 
that we're going to continue to do this and make it the first treatment available rather than going through all the other difficulties and potential problems that gender dysphoric kids may have. Okay. Did you want to weigh in on that, John? Or no, I, I mean, I'm, I'm encouraged by those developments. It's also interesting. Um, I believe I mentioned Sweden. Sweden's actually, Sweden was actually a pioneer in, in delivering these, uh, you know, gender affirming treatments to, to minors. And now they only, they only allow it. Like Levi said, it's let's do psychiatric treatment first, if we can. And now for, um, you're not allowed to generally prescribe it. It's not a general health option. Someone has to actually be enrolled in a clinical trial. Um, so again, that's not a complete ban, uh, which I, I think would be justified, but uh, it's, it's much more controlled. So some of these very, very secular progressive nations are, are taking a step uh, back, which um, yeah, is encouraging. And we, we do hope to promote that in Canada as well. Yeah, they basically say, they actually use the terminology and recognize that this is a ongoing experiment. Like that's actually some of the words that they use. And I, and I realize, yeah, sometimes that puts it in a bad way, but they use that language. And so this is going to be an experiment. Let's make sure that we are doing it the way we've decided to do experiments in all our ways of society and have control groups and take every precaution to make sure that things aren't abused and things like that. So, yeah. Wow. Crazy. Okay. Well, then, how are we going to raise the the alarm bells here in Canada and get some action going? Uh, I mean, obviously, part of that is that this campaign. What's this campaign about exactly? What are you What are you going to be talking about in the presentation? I think by the time this drops, most people have had an opportunity to see see you guys come through their local area if they live in Canada. Um, but uh, yeah, if you want to just get the highlights of that, that'd be fantastic. Mm -hmm. So the main the main focus of this Let Kids Be campaign is is pretty simple. We just want um, in some ways, you could say it's like we need a law, like we need a law uh, for abortion, but we need a law about medical transitioning. And that law should be that we do not have medical or surgical transitions for minors at all. We have a blanket ban on them um, for a variety of reasons that we've outlined today. Um, the, the problems, the, the risks associated with those transitions, um, the fact that many of them would actually uh, that would resolve over the course of their lifeline lifetime if we let them develop the way that God intended them to, um, and the problem of consent. So we want that to be entirely illegal uh, across Canada. And we've seen some encouraging signs already in, in this regard. We've seen some provincial political parties say that parents seem to be more involved in this, in these types of questions with their children, particularly in schools. So at the very least, taking a step back and saying, no, that parents need to be involved in the decisions has, has been a good, good step. Um, one of Canada's political parties, uh, the Conservative Party, recently passed a policy at their last convention with the exact same policy that we recommend, saying that they want to ban surgical and medical transitioning for minors. Um, so sometimes, actually, that can even be a really good in, depending on who your member of parliament is, if they belong to the Conservative Party, at the, if that's the case, and that is basically a way to raise it with them in a, in, in a way that they can they can hear and sympathize with a little bit more. It's not just one person who decides that, yeah, this is really important to me, and so I'm going to talk to my member of parliament for them. Um, it's actually something that the grassroots of the entire party have identified as an issue and that they want to action on. Um, but just one more thing on that is just the way that Canada is set up as a nation and our government is is this is primarily an issue that falls to the various provinces. So sometimes we focus a lot on MPs and what happens in Ottawa, but this is a particular issue because it falls in the realm of health broadly, 
that is up to provinces to take a stand on. So we love when people talk to their MP, but especially for an issue like this, uh, we would love to see hundreds or thousands or ultimately tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people talk to their provincial MPP, their provincial MLA, and really urge them to start talking about and start uh, introducing legislation or talking to their colleagues or all sorts of different things to try to push back against this, this fundamental misdiagnosis of the problem of gender dysphoria and the myth and the faulty solution that is promoted in our society today. Mm -hmm. Some of the provinces I've noticed, uh, I believe Manitoba, uh, they're in the middle of the election, I think as, as we're reporting this, um, the conservative party there is promising to, uh, to ban this for minors or are they promising more of a school choice like parents need to be involved? There's something positive in that regard, right? Yeah. Sorry, Levi, go ahead. Sorry. Uh, it, they definitely made a promise to, uh, it, 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 when it's coming to parents and schools and being informed about the children's decision there. I have not parents. heard anything about uh, banning medical or surgical, surgical transitions. If that is the case, that would be fantastic. But I haven't heard that quite yet. Right, right. Okay, well, the, the baby steps, though. There was uh, a premier out east as well, which I believe Trudeau has been trying to stick his nose into. And then I saw the other day Pierre Polyev very firmly told Trudeau to stay out of it. So hopefully there will be uh, yeah, some some more autonomy given to the provinces that way. We can make some good progress in that regard. Uh, John, do you want to touch on a few things that uh, yeah that, that you're part of and that you'll be talking about in this uh, Let's Get Let Kids Be campaign? Yeah, um, maybe just let people in on a bit of the internal discussion at uh at ARPA. I mean, these these other policy areas matter to us too, and we will advocate on them when it comes to um, education. Right, uh, parents should be informed uh, about their you know, their children's gender identity at school. Often, children are are encouraged to explore their gender identity, maybe adopt a new gender identity at school uh, without telling your parents. Uh, we want to see policies change on that, of course. Um, one reason for focus on the um, medical transition was just, this was an area we can find agreement with on a lot of people. It is an area where um, quite a few children are are suffering irreversible damage um, by these procedures. And so this is this is a good, in some ways, a good entry point, but it's not the only one. And also we see, we do see this, um, again, ARPA is a, of course, a Christian political advocacy organization. And so we are focused on the political and legal manifestations of you know some of these clashes of, of worldview and, and anthropologies, but we actually see this also as uh, an opportunity in terms of Christian apologetics and and evangelism. Um, one of the reasons some people say that uh, Christianity spread quite quickly uh, among you know the downtrodden and, and among women in in um, in its early history is because of how it elevated women and also elevated the human body in a culture that that degraded both. And if so, if you weren't someone who was wealthy and powerful, you could be physically, sexually uh, abused, um, and that that was rampant in in ancient pagan culture. Uh, and Christianity set up something that was very different. It said, "Look, look at the goodness of of our bodies, and God wants us to." Um, respect and care for these bodies um and and women or men are 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 equal and in marriage they're they're 
they're equal in the sense that they're each the body of each belongs to another, right? The wife isn't the sexual property of her husband. And I do think that translates into this issue today, where we didn't really get into some of the, you know, a lot of the causes of um, gender dysphoria and that and that whole wave. But uh, I think a lot of um, a lot of people are struggling with what does my body, my sexuality mean? Um, pornography use is rampant, and children are are uh, many children are exposed to it quite young and it's very unsettling right what what is the meaning of my body my my sexuality for girls especially it's um being female isn't um even safe in in the way it's it's depicted in in a lot of our culture and and in pornography and so there's this reaction of like what, what is the body good what does it mean and christianity has an answer to a lot of struggling um worried people on this and so a question that might start hey how is it how did um, our culture uses phrases like being yourself and, you know, be who you are. Well, how did, how did being yourself start to require major medical interventions? Like being myself requires surgery and, and lifelong drugs that, that seems so out of step. And so by, you might start with that question, but then ask a few more, right. And to say, uh, what, what do I do with, um, with my body, what what is its meaning, and how can I how can I live in this body in a way that uh, is actually healthy and wholesome? And we have answers to that as Christians, right? We have a very positive view of the body as God's good creation, as as a gift from Him, right? Uh, and that's yeah, I think that's just a wonderful message for a culture that's very confused. And some of these policy issues, you know, as ARPA, our our starting point isn't going to be. Um, evangelism but it's 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 there it's it's all this is all rooted in our christian worldview and 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 christian motivations right mm -hmm. <clears throat> yeah it's a fantastic opportunity and that's that's a great perspective to kind of take us into the to the end of this discussion end of the show here it's a it's a real opportunity well first of all because the time is now to help these kids as you said there's uh like from a political point of view there's there's broad convergence on this on this issue and it seems like a winnable one that we can get support to help all these these kids out and then also it's a yeah it's a chance to kind of put our foot in the door and into the heart of the heart of this nation right the hearts of our fellow citizens to to open up uh, a discussion about our faith and and to be able to do that with people so um i'll, I'll uh put it back to you levi anything you want to uh, leave people with in terms of calls to action or anything and then i'll, I'll give you one last chance john to say a few words if you want to do that as well yeah for sure thanks uh yeah Basically, for action, as we love to see as many people contacting their, their provincial representatives as possible, urging them to take action on this. We have a, a website online, letkidsbe.ca, that really tries to approach the wider public, the issues that are going on with medical and surgical transitioning, trying to get the broader public on board and active on this. There are flyers that people can then order and leave at um Kind of how we've done some other initiatives to go and put stick them in mailboxes or in people's doors. Um, one of the coolest things I thought as a as a chapter, an ARPA chapter that we have across the countries, there's there's many chapters. Is some of them have even engaged their school, local school library and tried to uh, recommend books that are uh, that have a good perspective on these topics so that they're available for the public to read. I've even seen some be able to pass on and put our policy reports in the library for people to to check out, which I think is super cool. Um, these days with uh, cancel culture, uh, hopefully that would uh, still still pass muster, still, still happen. Uh, so those are action uh, items there. But in in 
overall, I would say just be hopeful is that this is an issue that often is hard to talk about. And sometimes it seems that it's going the wrong way. But at the end of the day, um, I was talking in conversation um, with a very senior former public servant. He spent his entire lives in, in life in politics and civil service um, as a Christian. He basically said that Christians should be the least cynical citizens of the country, the least cynical. Sometimes I think we're the most cynical, but we're the least cynical because we have a God that reigns over all of creation. And no matter what happens, he's always able to bring about change if that's his will. And miracles happen no matter what the trajectory can look like. He can change the world if he so desires. And even if it isn't at his desire, just like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they said to King Nebuchadnezzar, even if you decide to throw in the fiery furnace, our God will deliver us. Well, we know at the end of the day, at the end of time, that God will deliver us, his faithful, his faithful children, and for anyone who has been impacted by this whole topic, whether they uh, made irreversible life decisions, um, whether they uh, were the ones perpetrating some of these decisions and actually doing these surgeries, if they ultimately fundamentally return to God and have faith in him and trust in him, then even those abuses and all those scars will be forgiven too. So I just want to leave people in this conversation with a message of hope for, for the future, no matter what the future brings. Very good. Go ahead, John. Yeah, no, I, I I can't really do any better than that. I I, I do like um, Levi's talking. Of course, has talked. Uh, I guess by the time this is released in the tour about um, are being made in the image of God, and and that keeping that in mind too. Uh, that uh, you know, people people will have suffered and have suffered damage as a result of this ideology, and uh, the church the church should be a place where they are. Are welcomed, right? Um, Isaiah talks about um, eunuchs as inheriting the family of God, and and the childless as rejoicing uh, that God is is um, is giving them his his descendants, his his family. Really, that um, whatever happens to us in this life, and and whatever damage is done to our our psyches and our bodies, uh, God God can can heal those. He he redeems us, right? Um, and so, like Levi said, that that gives us great uh, hope. So. Uh, thanks to you, uh, Lucas, and um, Real Talk and Reform Perspective for chatting with us about this. Absolutely. My pleasure. And uh, yeah, thank you for your time today, gentlemen. It's, uh, it's been a surprisingly happy ending to a, a dark subject. So I'm, uh, yeah, I'm pleasantly surprised. I think it went very well. Uh, hopefully our listeners enjoyed it. Hopefully uh, by the time you've heard this, you've been able to see ARPA on tour and have heard uh, more in person. Um, but hopefully you've learned from this and that you'll get active in your community and uh, reach out to your MP, reach out to your MLA, reach out to your MP, MPP rather. And um, yeah, just, just be involved, uh, help hand out flyers, do everything you can to, uh, to spread the word and help out our, our neighbors here in Canada. So uh, with all that said, check out our, uh, all of our ARPA's work at arpacanada.ca and uh, you can find all the social handles there. Um, for now, I think that's it for this time. So it's been real talk and we'll catch you next time. Folks. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of real talk. We really appreciate you taking the time to listen or watch the show. If you want to send us your feedback and we'd love to hear it, please email us at reformed at gmail.com. If you want to find us online or social media, we've got a lot of great content there. Just search Reformed Real Talk and we should come right up. 
This show is created and produced by myself, Lucas Holtfluer, and Tyler Vanderwood. And our wonderful podcast manager who does all the editing is Mariah Tamiga. So we're really thankful for her contribution to the show as well. That's all for now, folks. Thanks for watching or listening, and we'll catch you next time. Bye-bye.